The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. How are things going for you in the prosecutorial world they're going well everything's fine uh, i'm going to take that as my cue to introduce our topic today <laughs> you know so, I can't slip anything by you i know that was good it landed in my lap so you know mitch we talked about the topic for today and we are in many ways going to loop back and uh, in some ways go back into the classroom a little bit. I think it's timely because as we ramp up or uh, just about finish our intro to law sessions at our schools, uh, we are going to talk about the difference between civil and criminal cases and work through some of the significant procedural events that happen in both civil lawsuits and criminal cases. And I think as we do it, Mitch, we can define certain terms, and maybe in some ways engage in some myth-busting. Well, I think that's a great approach, Stephen. And I would also add to that introduction that today we're going to talk again about our constitutional rights. And it's I think it's sometimes surprising to individuals, those who are not lawyers, not going to law school, how, how often that we refer back to the, the Constitution to define our fundamental rights. And I say define our fundamental rights. For you, it's, it's something you do every single day in your role as a prosecutor, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And, you know, it's, uh, it is something that cannot be taken for granted because with every single procedural event that takes place in our courtrooms nationwide, constitutional safeguards are implicated across the board. And one of the things we can talk about today will be uh, the Brady versus Maryland case, which is a 1963 case that has very long uh, been on the books, and it relates to the affirmative obligation of prosecutors to provide uh, what's called exculpatory evidence uh, to the defense. And exculpatory, a better term or an easier term for exculpatory would be favorable evidence to the defendant. We can expand on that topic and many others. 
And I, and I think it's another good good point that when it comes to understanding and following constitutional law, in this case, you're talking about the due process clause of the U.S. Constitution, one would think that all that needs to be said has already been said, and yet it's it's really not true. Here's a case where in 1963, Brady versus Maryland set the standards of what prosecutors must do in relationship to providing information that they have to defendants. And yet, here in May of 2017, the State Bar of California, where where both of us uh, reside, actually passed a new rule, Rule 5-110, which calls, which is titled Special Responsibilities of Prosecutor. And essentially, it continues to refine and define the standards under the Brady versus Maryland rule for prosecutors under the state of California. So yeah, it does. Hey, of 2017, we still see refinements of a case that went back to 1963. We do, Mitch, and I think you're you're right to point out that uh, this does signal that uh, the case is very significant. In fact, the Supreme Court, our California Supreme Court, did uh, assemble on on bank, which means they were all justices or a full complement of the court through an administrative order in approving Rule 5-1110. And really what that does now is it sets out an ethical obligation uh, by virtue of a statute and an ethical rule now and I think what that signals, Mitch, is that it, it's another way of just placing prosecutors on notice that the Brady versus Maryland case has now been uh, incorporated in an actual ethical rule. So uh, it's vibrant and uh, it ought to be and it will remain vibrant and, a, and an ongoing obligation of the prosecution. And I thought it, I don't want to spend a lot of time on federal versus state, although we've talked about that in a number of recent cases about the the rules of the federal constitution, the rules of state constitution, and then the, the rules and laws that derive from each of those. But, but this is one of those in instances where there's not a lot of distance. Uh, and that was decided a long time ago, relatively long time ago as well. There was even a, a federal law, the McDade Amendment back in 1998, that clarified that if you're a federal prosecutor, now you're a, you're a state, or you're actually a county prosecutor, district attorney's office in San Luis Obispo County, but if you were working for the federal government, you wouldn't have any different set of rules either, would you? The McDade Amendment would say that if you're prosecuting in California as a fe- under federal law or state law, the California ethics rules still apply to you as a California lawyer, don't they? That's right. That's right. So it really does have a cross-the-board application. And as you mentioned, it is tethered to the U.S. Constitution. And we're talking about the obligation of uh, prosecutors, uh, the obligation that prosecutors have to provide defendants with all exculpatory evidence, and that relates to another topic we'll get into, and that's the rules of discovery, and that's the exchange of information uh, during the filing phase and commencement uh, of a criminal case. And then we can compare it to actually civil cases also. So if I could be a little professorial here, uh, you and I 
have many more opportunities to, to deal with the ethics rules, but most of our listeners do not. If you'll, if you'll bear with me a moment, let me hit a couple of the key points of the new California rule. Again, they reinforce things that have been in existence for quite some time, because I think these are things you'd like to, that we'd like you to talk about. So, so let's start right up at the top. It, it says a prosecutor in a criminal case shall, number one, shall not institute or continue to prosecute a charge that the prosecutor knows is not supported by probable cause. Well, that, I'm not sure everyone realizes that the, the role of the prosecutor in the, in the discussion of this rule is that you are not just a prosecutor on behalf of the state, but they actually use the words minister of justice. And that you have an objective role to determine whether or not the charge even should go forward. And I don't think most people realize that, Stephen. No, Mitch, you're right. And that's, that's a good topic to expand upon. The roles of prosecutors in the filing phase is something that I think the public might not get enough information about. So the law enforcement agency would be the agency that fact gathers and submits an arrest report and they get submitted to the appropriate uh, prosecutorial agency. And then there's a vetting process and that's what you were uh, addressing there. Then that's the review of the reports and the decision to actually file charges, which really gets the formal ball rolling, if you will, in terms of uh, an actual charge that gets filed with the court. And that's where the great discretion comes in and your reference to there being an obligation by the prosecution to only file on cases where there is probable cause to proceed. And I can actually ramp it up a level, uh, Mitch, because most prosecutors would review cases based on the ability to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt so the vetting process before a case is filed must be, must be very, very detailed. Well, talk a little about the difference because you've, you've raised another standard that I, I, I mentioned one that people may not have, have triggered on, probable cause. So you've, you've walked us up this ladder of proof before, but I think it bears repeating the distinction between probable cause and beyond a reasonable doubt. Those are very specific terms of art, aren't they? Yeah, they are, Mitch, and they're actually embodied into statutes. And, and the, to look at those two standards, the probable cause standard uh, would be uh, a lesser standard, not, not as high as beyond a reasonable doubt. The probable cause standard is the one that's usually used when a case goes to preliminary hearing. So in a felony case, when the prosecution presents facts before a magistrate at preliminary hearing, the standard is probable cause, and that is uh, reasonable suspicion to believe that a crime occurred and that the accused did it or was involved with the crime. So it's a lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard that's applied when a case goes to trial, either bench trial or trial by jury. And that is a jury instruction that requires that the jury has an abiding conviction in the truth 
uh, or the strength of the evidence. And that's that has to be assigned to each and every element of the crime. So, it's a difference uh, between the two, isn't there? And I may be going out on a limb here. It's been a while since I took criminal law. Preponderance of the evidence, doesn't that split the difference between probable cause and beyond a reasonable doubt? Yeah, so uh, if you looked at it in terms of going up the ladder, Mitch, the preponderance of the evidence standard is the one that's applied in civil cases. Ah, okay. and, and a good way to think about that is is more likely than not. In other words, it's measured by whether or not it is more likely than not to be true. And that is one lower standard. There's also clear and convincing, which is another standard that's applied sometimes. And that's one that really falls between uh, preponderance and then beyond a reasonable doubt. So in a criminal case, the standard must always be beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, there are only a few examples where the standard can be lower, and that's really uh, when uh, the prosecution is going to challenge the defense's affirmative defense claim in certain cases. So it sounds like the way you're describing it, the, the first threshold, at least statutorily and in, in the new rules, is if a prosecutor is looking whether or not to file charges, they understand that not all of the investigation is necessarily done. And that makes sense. There's some of that's going to come through with additional witness interviews and depositions and evidence that comes up through the investigation. So they don't have to wait, or you don't have to wait till the investigation is absolutely completed before you begin the process of bringing charges, right? So that's why the probable cause is generally the first step. And then before you actually get into trial and prove it, it has to then be beyond a reasonable doubt. Is that a fair characterization? That, that, that is fair, uh, Mitch, with the exception of your reference to depositions, because in criminal cases, um, depositions are typically not one of the discovery tools that, that we can use as prosecutors. Okay. Uh, but, but you are right about your reference to the fact that investigations are often not completed at the filing phase is a very good point because of the complexity of some cases. So there could be, and there very often is, enough evidence to support or to justify the filing of charges, yet there may be additional evidence. And that, that gets into uh, a discussion of the obligation of continuously providing information to the defense uh, during the discovery phase. We can get into that in our next segment when we talk a little bit more about uh, discovery. And just kind of to wrap up this, this introductory, uh, all of this really does reflect the fact that even though you, we all know you are innocent to proven guilty, the fact that you have charges filed against you can dramatically impact someone's life and business, can't it? Yeah, it can. Um, although it's not an adjudication, meaning that it shouldn't be considered something that's indelible necessarily because merely having charges filed against you um, is a far cry from actually suffering a conviction. But you are right that there could be stigmas associated with, with actually uh, 
being a defendant in a criminal case. So when we get back, Mitch, let's expand on our discussion of civil lawsuits versus criminal cases. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're going out on a very short break. When we return, we will continue our discussion of civil lawsuits versus criminal cases. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, this is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepherd Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, we're talking today about civil lawsuits and comparing civil lawsuits with criminal prosecutions. And there are, of course, dramatic differences. And one of those relates to the exchange of information and the discovery process. And Mitch, you had been talking earlier about the topic of the decision to file criminal charges. 
Right. And, and before we leave just that one point, I, I'd like to raise a question and just get your thoughts on it. You know, we, we think, that, as you said, that the fact that somebody has charges filed in and of itself is not a judgment. That is not a judicial decision. They are not guilty. They're just charges that have been filed and they've met reasonable or, or met probable cause before those file charges have been filed. But, but we can't forget that there are expenses involved in that decision as well. The prosecutors have to bring through, you've got allocate a lawyer to it, there's investigators that are assigned. I mean, the, the use of our tax money ramps up the minute that decision is made. But there's also significant defense uh, expenses as well. Most people will get a lawyer to defend even the initial finding of probable cause, right? Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And what typically happens uh, first sort of to look at the defendant side of the ledger would be that if you are uh, charged criminally, you formally become a defendant. And the next procedural step typically after filing is an arraignment where you appear in court and you are apprised of the charges and given an opportunity to be appointed counsel, and that would be an assignment to the public defender's office, if you demonstrate the inability to uh, pay or secure counsel, private counsel, which very often happens. And then on the other hand, if a defendant does wish to engage private counsel, of course, there's expenses associated with that in the private sector. So, no doubt there's an expense associated uh, with the defense side. But you raise another good point, Mitch, on the prosecution side, which is a very interesting topic. And that's one of resource allocation very often depending upon the charges. So uh, the, the fiscal impact, and you had referenced taxpayer monies, uh, the fiscal impact and resource allocation is definitely a hot topic uh, in the filing decision of certain cases because very often an agency, a prosecuting agency, would need to reach out to other other agencies for assistance, perhaps other law enforcement agencies. Uh, again, it depends upon the depth or the wealth uh, or, or the complexities involved in a certain case. And so before we again distinguish between civil versus criminal, just, just a reminder that we talked a lot about the upfront decision, but the new rule in California, one of the things it points out is that the obligation that the prosecutor makes all the way from whether to file the case to, to continue to pursue and, and provide information to the defense about anything that you talked about being exculpatory or favorable to the, to the client. So at any point, if the prosecutor comes across information that says, oops, this this case should not go forward or one of our witnesses is no longer credible and they were key to the finding of probable cause or finding beyond a reasonable doubt, that there's an affirmative duty of the prosecutor to call everything off. Yes, indeed, Mitch. And the other thing that I would add to that, and this does come out uh, by virtue of the state bar's uh, adoption of the ABA rules and the, the now codification uh, of this ethical obligation is that even post-conviction, Mitch, there's an obligation on the part of the prosecution. And this does happen occasionally. There could be a conviction secured uh, 
uh, or a plea entered, a conviction secured would really be the result of uh, a jury's finding or a judge in a bench trial's finding of guilt. And if there is information that's gleaned after the conviction that is exculpatory in nature or uh, places the prosecution on notice that there might have been uh, a miscarriage of justice, there's an obligation to notify defense. Uh, and that's a very, very significant issue. So it's, it's easy to get confused. Let's, let's move on. to You raised the question difference criminal versus civil. It's easy for folks, even I get confused from time to time. And I, in the first segment, I misused a word that was appropriate on the civil side and doesn't really apply to the standard on the criminal side. So on the criminal side, the prosecutor brings charges and the defendant now then has the right of counsel, constitutional right of counsel, and they either get appointed a lawyer or they can get private counsel to defend themselves. And the prosecutor has all of these additional responsibilities that are imposed by the Constitution through Brady versus Maryland and through state ethical rules to throughout the process continue to evaluate whether this case should go forward. But on the civil side, where it's a plaintiff, not the state, a plaintiff, an individual citizen who brings a case against another individual citizen who's now the defendant, a plaintiff versus defendant versus the state versus a defendant, it's a different set of standards, isn't it? Yeah, it is a different set of standards, and it implicates different statutes too, Mitch. So if you look at the two and try to compare the discovery obligations or the discovery system. And again, we're now talking about the open and ongoing exchange of information connected to the lawsuit in a civil case or the prosecution in a criminal case. So there's an affirmative duty in a criminal case to supply the defense up front with all information uh, there will be a complaint, there will be police reports, there will be perhaps toxicology reports and uh, companion information that helps support the basis for the charges. And that is an ongoing obligation. As you mentioned in the, in the beginning of the show, Mitch, it's common for there to be ongoing investigations in cases. So as information supplied to the prosecution, it needs to be turned over to the defense at all times. If you done in a timely manner, right? Talk a little uh, about that. When absolutely you sit so, on it to the last minute and say, "Oh, wait a minute, we happened to find this six months ago, and now we're giving it to you." Yeah, great, great point. So, what happens there from a uh, timeliness standpoint, Mitch, is that uh, the information that is in possession of the prosecution needs to be turned over to the defense before the preliminary hearing in a felony case. So in a felony, the defense has a right to a preliminary hearing, and that's usually the first critical step uh, in the prosecution or in, in the cycle of a criminal case. So the obligation would be to supply the defense with all information prior to the preliminary hearing. And, in, and that's a, a distinction between civil because the prosecutor, what you just described, they actually have to do that whether or not the defense ever asks in general or specifically for a piece of evidence, right? I mean, that's yes. affirmative duty that they just have to give even if the defense doesn't think to ask about it. 
Yes, that is true, Mitch. But what I'll add is uh, what most defense attorneys do, and this is, of course, very prudent, is that they make written requests for discovery. And often included in the written request for discovery would be all, quote, Brady material. Ah, okay. Which really has has, uh, the colloquial meaning all exculpatory evidence. So if there's anything out there that could be considered exculpatory, uh, turn it over. And the good practice from defense counsel, uh, and frankly, as a prosecutor, I certainly welcome this because it leaves a good good paper trail and good support for uh, the exchange of information is uh, that you have to turn everything over. And, and most offices, certainly our office, Mitch, has what we call a Brady policy where we have protocols by which we ensure that we are providing all that information. And that's pretty much adopted in all 58 counties, certainly in California. And just one, I know we're getting a little deep in the weeds here, but just because you, you maybe think about it, when you talk about ex, uh, favorable and exculpatory, it's, it's really both sides. It's any information that might be favorable to the defendant, but it also includes any information that might be, be used to impeach the key government witnesses or evidence. Absolutely, Mitch. And what I can use as an example, and I certainly would not cite to any anybody by name, but one good example would be where the prosecution has information that one of their witnesses has something in their history that could be reached as impeachment that might cast doubt upon the veracity of their reports. And, and that is that is a very significant part of the Brady obligation. Okay, so that that's the criminal side. Now let's flip over to the civil side. You have you have a plaintiff, not a prosecutor. A plaintiff brings a claim, and a defense provides a response. Uh, is is there any? So let's say you bring the claim, and same idea. The plaintiff brings a claim for, let's say. Uh, damages. And uh, let's say it was even a, a somebody, uh, the example I like to use in early in law school is, you know, somebody strikes someone with a fist. There's the possibility of a crime there of assault and battery, but they break the person's cheek and the person's out of work for six months. There's the, at the same time, there's the possible tort of battery and that there could be money due if it wasn't a reasonable strike or a uh, self-defense. And so now we shift over to the tort side and I bring a claim for $100,000 for lost wages because your client struck my client. But I know there's a witness that saw, saw my client taunting them and threatening them before the, the strike. Do I have to bring that forward? How does that happen on the civil side? Gosh, Mitch, if I was teaching torts, I would uh, I would say you just fed me a fact pattern. <laughs> that was good. So, you know, Mitch, what I'll do is, is start by saying that the role in discovery, and again, the exchange of information, is to create an, an equal playing field. That's a really good way of explaining it. So the idea is that neither plaintiff or defendant should be surprised by anything. And when I say anything, I mean by evidence or information that might be admissible when a case gets before 
a judge or a mediator or an arbitrator in a civil type setting. So there are discovery tools in a civil case, for instance, written questions, those are called interrogatories, that the plaintiff can serve on the defense and the defense in turn can serve on the plaintiff. And that would be uh, a request for answers to questions under oath. And those can then be used ultimately to potentially impeach uh, or support certain evidence. And then there's depositions, which would be sworn testimony in a in a uh, informal setting yet having a formal impact because that can be used that information can ultimately be used and then there's so that's testimony and then there's a document exchange as well there is there can be a request for documents there can also be what's called requests for admissions which would be a request to admit or deny certain allegations Uh, And all of that's governed in the civil arena, Mitch, by the Code of Civil Procedure. So there are statutes set out that must be followed in terms of uh, the breadth of discovery, how expansive the discovery can be. Uh, So it's a different, uh, by comparison, the civil discovery is actually not monitored by the courts, the parties, the litigants or to marshal that themselves, it's only until or unless there are disputes and then there's things like motions to compel answers if one party's dragging their feet or, or um, unnecessarily creating obstacles. So if I understand this correctly, and I know we're coming up on this break, but, there, but there's a timeliness, you'll have to answer this after the break, but we'll go back to the issue of timeliness and then obligation to disclose when we come back. Let's do it when we come back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio, and we've been talking about the differences between civil lawsuits and criminal cases, and we will pick up on that topic when we return. Don't go away. We'll be right back. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. 
The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been discussing the differences between civil lawsuits and criminal cases, and this led us into a discussion of the exchange of information, which formally goes by the name Discovery. And Mitch, we were discussing the civil discovery tools and rules of engagement before we went on the break. Yeah, and one of the things I thought would be interesting, Stephen, is there's a, you know, we talked we started the show about talking about statutory and ethical responsibilities of a prosecutor having to, in a timely way, provide this information to defense. Now you've shifted us over to the civil case where it's two individuals with uh, private lawyers. Uh, the state's role in the civil case is to provide a judge and to provide a venue and to provide rules of civil procedure. But for the most part, the discovery rules of the information flow back and forth. Is it fair to say it's more regulated by just the rules of ethics and not necessarily statutory standards that we talked about for prosecutors? Yeah, that is a good point, Mitch. And it's interesting because there is statutory authority that sets out very clear guidelines and rules of engagement in terms of the discovery tools, like what, what methods can be used to obtain information. But by and large, the process itself, the exchange of information, is really left to the litigants. And you mentioned ethics, so there, there is a direct connection there. And the ethical obligation would be that the parties must exchange information openly and not create obstacles unless there's valid objections to the request for information. And of course, there very often are valid objections. But it's really left to the litigants to work through uh, their issues amicably. Um, of course, it doesn't always work that way, and that often leads to court intervention and that usually comes in the form of what's called a motion to compel, which is a, a request 
for court intervention to force a party to supply information. So, for instance, if I uh, propound or send written requests for information to you as a defendant and you do not respond in a timely fashion or you object and I think your objection is bogus without merit and that what you're really doing is just dragging your feet or hoping that my questions will go away, right? Right. Um, it's not, un- that's an example where court intervention might actually be warranted and, and it could lead to sanctions or, or penalties if a party uh, does not cooperate with the discovery process. And the sanctions can apply in criminal cases too, Mitch. We talked about that while we were off air very briefly. Uh, so, for instance, if the prosecution does not supply the defense with information in a timely manner, there are mechanisms by which uh, the court can issue sanctions, and sometimes that can result in the prosecution's inability to introduce the evidence, or if they introduce it, the jury may be apprised of the fact that the prosecution was what I'll call for now tardy in supplying the information. So, you know, as you're talking about that, uh, I've what comes to mind, and we've seen it in a number of movie scenarios, for example, where you have the the little guy, the the someone bringing a, a plaintiff case against a huge multinational corporation. Uh, for example, on things such as the uh, seat belt failures or recalls or uh, issues related to toxic chemicals. And so the plaintiff says, please give me all the information you have about your research on XYZ chemical and three 18-wheelers full of cardboard boxes stacked to the top with no indexing shows up at the office of the plaintiff's attorney. Is that fair? <laughs> you, you know what? You've actually just laid out a hypothetical that plays out all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, so, in other words, the requesting party is asked for information, and in response, they're just given uh, half of a warehouse full of paper documents. And it happens. I mean, that's not an exaggeration, is it? Yeah, it, it does. And there's means by which, the, in your hypothetical, the plaintiff can uh, document the fact that defense is not being uh, forthright in their responses and that the initial party requesting the information can ask for more specific or detailed uh, responses. So generally speaking, you know, things like indexing or labeling the boxes or providing some chronological order, things of that nature, could, could that be ordered by the court? Yeah, it can. It, and that could be reached and addressed in a motion to compel. Uh, and, you know, what happens often, Mitch, is the, the initial request for information can either genuinely be ambiguous or the the receiving party can claim it's ambiguous. And sometimes there is a tug of war over vague requests or ambiguous requests. And ultimately what happens is uh, there's more precision in defining um, the information that's sought. 
frequently thought of as a fishing expedition, correct? Well, you, yeah, you, you need to be specific in terms of the information that you're requesting. Um, there is an obligation that you clearly define what you're looking for because it is a valid objection to claim vague. You know, for instance, all documents, you know, the term all documents, well, that's going to uh, result in some kind of a claim of ambiguity or, or vagueness on the receiving party's side. Now, I've also seen instances where, uh, let's say, the uh, I'm thinking in terms of like an intellectual property case where you've got one claim against a party and there's some really private proprietary information that's involved. Uh, are the You are allowed in some cases to create a separate log of, of information you object. So can't you give some information and then you also provide a log of, I'm not providing you the following information and you, you have to explain exactly why and what the exceptions to discovery would be? That's right. Yes, Mitch. Um, and that is typically known as a privilege log. Um, so you've raised a, an interesting issue in connection with intellectual property and potential privacy rights. And that does very often come up. Um, For instance, the plaintiff in a lawsuit would be seeking information that the defendant feels is privileged. So you can assert a privilege, but you also need to back it up. And the way you do that is by creating a privilege log which is written documentation of the items that you believe are privileged. And ultimately, that will receive review uh, by the court or a discovery referee. Sometimes courts assign a discovery referee, which is very often a member of the private bar, to marshal and monitor uh, the exchange of information. But that's a hotly contested issue, Mitch, and especially with you know, Silicon Valley uh, lawsuits over uh, intellectual property and breach of contract cases. And just talk just briefly a little more about privilege, because you and I know what that means, but that, I mean, that that's another loaded term. I mean, that, that's, what, it, what's, in, what, give some examples. What yeah, we, sure. So, so privilege, I mean, the one I think of right away is going to be attorney-client privilege, which would be all communications that you have with your retained counsel or even communications that you have with uh, potential counsel when you're out perhaps interviewing attorneys. All of that is privileged information and cannot cannot be uh, revealed unless there's an exception where there might be an eavesdropper or an unnecessary third party participating in that conversation. But that's a very good example of a privilege that might apply. There's also the, the Fifth Amendment privilege, and there, there's an actual connection there, Mitch, between civil and, and criminal. So it may well be that in a civil case, information is sought, and the answers or the information that's sought might actually give rise to a valid claim of the Fifth Amendment privilege, meaning that if the, or that the answer may actually be a form of... Uh, a form of an admission to some kind of criminal conduct. And on those lines, let me ask you something I think a, a lot of people question. Can evidence that's been presented in a criminal case be used in a civil case and vice versa? Yeah, so in 
the evidence that is developed in a criminal case can be used in a subsequent civil case uh, because there's going to be a documented record and there's concepts known as res judicata and collateral estoppel. Had to weave some Latin in there, <laughs> which, which, which may well mean that uh, in the case of collateral estoppel, which would be issue preclusion, meaning that if in a criminal case an issue had already been decided and adjudicated, a subsequent civil case could actually use the evidence from a criminal case in an effort to support the introduction of that evidence in a subsequent civil case. The reverse hypothetical is a little different. I think that you were inviting me to consider civil first followed by criminal. Uh, the rules uh, don't necessarily have cross application there. So probably the most famous in our lifetime was the O.J. Simpson case where there was both a, a highly followed and now semi-fictionalized in television and movies criminal case then followed by an equally followed civil case. Yeah, that's a good way to actually wrap up today, Mitch, because that that's the civil case that followed the criminal case was based on wrongful death and it introduced or gave rise to a different standard of proof, right? And in a civil case, that would have been preponderance of the evidence. So lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. That's right. So even though <clears throat> there was an acquittal in the criminal case, the civil case, as everyone realizes, still proceeded uh, and was successfully prosecuted on the civil side based upon preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not in the wrongful death kind of uh, standard. And to bring that into some current cases, we're seeing that exact same scenario in some of the police shooting cases, aren't we? Where the, the, the families of the, the victim, uh, although there may not have been a successful prosecution, they bring a corollary or a parallel civil case because it's a different standard of proof. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. That in, so in, in excessive force-like cases, there could be a criminal track and a civil track. And those are both measured differently in terms of standard and proof. Standard of proof, um, of course, the criminal case would be beyond a reasonable doubt standard, and the civil case can proceed on the strength of the preponderance standard. So that's a good, good example. And a, and a reminder that if the fact that somebody is found guilty in a civil trial and a criminal trial, even if there's a fine out. Uh, assessed, uh, those dollars go to the state. If you're looking for a monetary uh, compensation, there's going to have to be a civil case on the other side. That's right. Yeah. Ultimate goal in the civil case is monetary damages or redress in the form of uh, monetary damages. Criminal, quite different because of the penalties imposed. Well, Professor Wagner, you've done a great job today. As always, it reminds me why we're so thrilled to have you on our faculty at, at Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. Uh, we've talked today about the difference between civil and criminal cases. I hope this has been instructive and helps individuals. As always, watch the daily news and be better informed about what's going on in the judicial system, both civil and criminal. A reminder that you can hear an archive of today's program on voiceamerica.com 
or wagnerandwinnick.com. And as we suggest to you every week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. 
Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 